Hello and welcome back to Long Short. I'm Drew Nicholl. My co-host Tom Keogh is in Dubai all week, which is nice for him, but I am joined instead by Daniel Austin, Director of US Policy and Regulation and Amos Eyes and Ears in Washington DC, who has once again stepped up at short notice to give us a very timely update on some of the most pressing regulatory files facing the alternative investment industry today. There's so much we could talk about, but we're going to limit ourselves to only the most pressing topics, and that is the SEC's proposal for amendments to the dealer rule, the Treasury clearing proposal, and of course, the private funds advisor rule. I will say at the top that we are recording this on Thursday, the 2nd of November, 2023, and it's likely that at some point soon, the views expressed here will become dated as these are all highly fluid topics. But we have accounted for this and we will revisit all of these points later in the month once we know more. Daniel, your episodes are always among our most popular, so thank you so much for giving us your view from the Hill once again. Welcome back to The Long Shore. I appreciate it, Drew. I'm sure it's it's not a, a causation there. It's probably more of a correlation with people just uh, wanting to hear more about the material, not necessarily from the uh, person delivering it. I think you should just take it, take the compliment. <laughs> uh, so I should say at the top, we are recording this episode on Thursday, the 2nd of November. And that is important because it means that there are certain things we do know and some things we don't know as we go through this conversation. And the plan is for this to be uh, the first of a two-part episode. And we will return to all of these topics next Thursday or Friday, potentially, and uh, give you all the answers that we couldn't give you this time around. So we're going to be talking about a few pieces here. But the first one is to say that we are meant to be having this conversation just as the clock has started to count down on the final rule for the dealer proposal, meaning that we were meant to hear something yesterday that we didn't. Unfortunately, the SEC is not keeping to our podcasting schedule. So, Daniel, just to start us off, can you explain what didn't happen yesterday? Right, Drew. So I think um, a lot of people in the industry were expecting the SEC to publish a notice of an open meeting uh, yesterday where they were going to consider a final rule adopting changes to the definition of securities dealer and government securities dealer. And the way that works is by law, the SEC, if they're hosting an open meeting, has to give at least seven days notice. So a lot of people were thinking that November 8th would be the day of the open meeting, meaning that the open meeting would be noticed on Wednesday, November 1st. That notice was not posted yesterday, so we continue to keep an eye on the uh, Federal Register and also the SEC's upcoming events page to see when that uh, notice will be posted. Um, I believe most folks think it could be any day now, certainly sometime uh, probably in November. So it could technically be any day, but uh, the smart money is on some Wednesday this month. That's correct. Yes. Most of the open meetings uh, that have been held under this commission have taken place on a Wednesday. So we're kind of betting that that's where it'll fall. If I had to hedge a bit, I would say perhaps it will fall on a Friday. Um, there was one open meeting recently where they adopted changes, uh, two rules, one regarding securities lending and another with short sales. Uh, that open meeting was held on a Friday. So we can perhaps keep an eye on, on the, uh, the upcoming events page for a Friday notice as well. We'll just have to keep you on call for the podcast for the next week or so then. I've been, I've been refreshing the SEC page way too many times. <laughs> 
Okay, so we're going to jump into the proposal and all aspects of that. But before we do, just to set the scene, could you just give us a very high level overview of the dealer rule as it stands? And at a most basic level, could you just help our very global audience understand what a securities dealer is in the US context? Right. So the Exchange Act really defines a securities dealer as somebody who's in the business of buying and selling securities. And what that means when the Exchange Act was written uh, and enacted into law in 1934 and the 89 years subsequent is that dealers being in the business of buying and selling securities mean they're facilitating customer orders in a principal capacity. So customers meaning hedge funds like many of AIMBA's members. And what this rule essentially seeks to do at, at its most basic level is require customers of dealers to register as dealers or government securities dealers based on how much and or how often they trade, which is a reinterpretation of the Exchange Act text. I think believe the congressional intent behind that language and certainly the market's understanding of what it means to be a securities dealer for the past 89 years. So we have nearly a century of precedent on this uh, on this rule. And in a nutshell, it would require hedge funds that are customers to become dealers and then some, even though they don't have customers themselves in, in a traditional sense. That's right. Yes. It's, it's, very, um, it's very puzzling, um, kind of the angle that the, the commission is taking, taken on kind of this reinterpretation of what it means to be a securities dealer. And you're right to the point that you know, dealers and broker dealers, you have to register as both. You can't register as one or the other. They're involved in either they're facilitating customer orders, neither a principal capacity as a dealer or in an agent capacity as a broker. Yeah, the common denominator there, Drew, is really there's a customer in both uh, transactions, whether the uh, broker is facilitating the customer's order in an agent capacity or the dealer facilitating the customer order in a principal principal capacity. So the SEC seems to have just ignored the idea that a customer is kind of the, one of the foundational aspects of, or serving customers is one of the foundational aspects of being a securities dealer. And that is a really important point for everyone to keep in mind, but there is so much more to delve into. So AMA, I believe, has filed no fewer than three letters to the SEC in response to this proposal, which you have been involved in all of them at a very close level. So could you just summarize AMA's sort of core argument here? We, we've mentioned the, the customer point, but there's a few other pillars, I think, to, to outlining our concerns. Right. So I highlighted the statutory authority uh, issue, and that kind of goes back to what the definition of dealer is under the Exchange Act, and we believe that the SEC is kind of seeking unilaterally to to rewrite that without um, a congressional amendment to the Exchange Act language of dealer. I think that that's that's one part. I think another part of the rule is the way it's it's crafted is a market participant would have to register as a government securities dealer or as a securities dealer if one of three very broad vague qualitative standards are met. And then there's a separate quantitative standard that applies specifically to treasury uh, security transactions, where if you uh, buy or sell 
25 billion or more in treasury securities in four out of the prior six months, then you have to register as a government securities dealer. So really there are kind of four standards under the rule where if any are met, then somebody would have to register as a dealer or government securities dealer. And the rule, the only parties that are excluded from the scope of this rule are 40 Act funds and those who manage assets left less than $50 million. So there's a very, very large scope of entities that could potentially be caught by this rule. The SEC estimates that I think uh, just under the qualitative standards, I believe it's 46 market participants would be caught. And we think that the way that those qualitative standards have been drafted, it would probably be 10x that. Um, and I think that's, that's very um, surprising that their estimate was as low as it was. I think another component of the rule is that within it, they specifically mentioned that they considered excluding private funds, in this case, hedge funds primarily and advisors from the scope of the rule because they're already subject to a very extensive regulatory framework under the Advisors Act. However, they ultimately decide to include hedge funds and advisors within the scope of the rule. But in doing so, and they analyze the cost benefits around that, they even say that the benefits of subjecting hedge funds to dealer registration might be very small. So in their own words, the benefits are going to be very small, but there are two benefits that they believe would, I guess, materialize out of this rule would be net capital and transaction reporting for hedge funds. So a hedge fund is essentially just a pool of assets. It's not an operating company like a broker dealer and it doesn't have customers like a broker dealer. It has investors and applying a net capital rule to a private fund would be totally um, just incompatible really and unnecessary for what a private fund is and does. Uh, and then you take net capital, or excuse me, you take transaction reporting and hedge funds, broker dealers who are executing the hedge funds, um, you know, trading activity are already reporting those transactions to the consolidated audit trail. So subjecting hedge funds to additional uh, transaction reporting under the dealer framework would be totally redundant and unnecessary. So that's another component of the rule. We don't believe that funds and advisors should be caught within scope of this, the scope of this rule. Uh, and then finally, and I think one of the main points is that there would be a really profound negative market impact if this rule were to be adopted as proposed or certainly similar to how it was proposed. Because as broad as the qualitative standards in particular have been drafted, you would see a number of hedge fund strategies that would be caught either curtail or totally, you know, cease certain strategies that would be implicated and therefore they would have to register as uh, securities dealers. And then you look at the quantitative aspect of the rule. Well, if it's at a $25 billion threshold, what are people going to do who are above that threshold? They're obviously going to pull back on their treasury uh, activity. And of course, that's a, a quite an inopportune time for the U.S. government as we hear seem to issue more and more debt each and every day. So just to clarify this 25 billion point, this is to say that they would they would trigger that threshold if they buy or sell 25 billion in US treasuries and that's net so sort of buy, overall trading volume reaches Correct. that. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the interesting thing about this rule is you could be for example in regard to the quantitative aspect 
uh, for treasuries, you could just be hedging in the cash treasury market and trigger the $25 billion threshold and have to register as a government securities dealer, which just doesn't seem right at all, really. I mean, if you're a large um, active participant in the treasury futures market, for example, um, and you're just hedging in the cash market, it, it, it doesn't make sense for you to uh, have to register as a government securities dealer just because that that's you're you're essentially engaged in your in risk and sound risk management practices. Right, and that just does seem to go against uh, a core tenant of of improving overall market stability. If you're punitively uh, punishing those that are are using the the treasury market for for hedging and as you say, sort of standard risk management um, strategies. So. Uh, we've 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 laid out how this will impact the market and how this will impact individual participants in the U.S. But I believe it goes beyond the U.S. Right by definition. Right. I mean, the only persons that are exempt from this are, are 40 Act funds and and um, uh, so 40 Act funds being meaning registered investment companies under the uh, Investment Company Act of 1940, and then those who manage assets less than 50 million dollars. So. If you're a you know Hong Kong-based hedge fund and you are an active trader in you know you're you have a quant strategy that's uh, you know trading U.S. securities and you trigger one of the first qualitative standards, um, you would theoretically be caught um, by by this rule because if if you're trading in U.S. markets and U.S. securities, um, the extraterritorial scope is is pretty broad for this rule. And just to give people a little bit of context on this, uh, 50 million might sound like a lot of assets and uh, those outside the industry might not have a good sense of what sort of a small, medium, large hedge fund is. When I'm wearing my research hat and we are doing our surveys of members and, and putting out research reports, we often uh, delineate the size of hedge funds at the billion dollar mark. So even a hedge fund that's around 800 million would still fall into the small category. And although that's our uh, line in the sand, and I'm, I'm sure other people have their own, that's the way we look at it. And, uh, and that is fairly common. So just to give you a sense of how low that 50 million threshold is. So moving on to the proposal itself, uh, as we said at the top, uh, it is now not coming out next Wednesday, but may well come out uh, in a Wednesday soon. Crystal ball time, Daniel, first of a few, I think, in this episode. Uh, do we expect there to be many revisions? Are we hopeful? Could you just maybe, maybe a more realistic question would be, could you just lay out some of the possible scenarios? Sure. I think, um, one, they could adopt it as is. Uh, I don't think they will. I think if you look at the comment file, um, Based on you know the number of commenters by percentage, I would wager a guess that this one is the most one-sided in terms of opposition to the proposed rule. Uh, it's a pretty stacked comment file of you know a wide range of industry groups, law firms, etc., that have um, you know highlighted and voiced their concerns with the proposed rule. I think if I had to predict, I would say that the final rule. Um, abandons the quantitative standard. I think that, uh, you know, you look back at the Exchange Act, kind of circling back to that, there's no uh, indication of 
quantity necessarily that is in, that is uh, indicative of dealer trading if, or dealer activity, if you will. And I think we've been very um, active in our conversations with the U.S. Treasury um, and other regulators about the broad impact that uh, the quantitative standard would have on treasury markets and then would certainly kind of filter out broadly into the derivative space as well. Um, so I think they'll ultimately, the final rule will ultimately abandon that. Uh, I do think that the final rule will include within its scope advisors and funds. Um, and then I think the qualitative standards will be very watered down uh, to a point where you kind of read the text and they'll say, you know, this activity would not be considered dealing under the final rule. However, there are instances where it could be, uh, where they, the, the waters become so muddy that nobody's really sure. And the SEC, you know, only, uh, you know, makes it more opaque as, as to what they think a securities dealer is and, and what triggers that under the final rule. You, you've mentioned uh, earlier that this is a particularly bad time to be messing with uh, treasury or security market more broadly, liquidity, and forcing people out the market. And you've also mentioned the treasury there, who I imagine would be um, equally keen to avoid um, further turbulence in these markets. So as much as you can, can you just articulate why the SEC or what the SEC's argument is for putting this proposal forward? I think everybody has their different theories. Mine, I think you could almost trace it back to the 2014 Treasury flash crash when they, Treasury, the Interagency Working Group on Treasury Market Surveillance, ultimately put together a report that really highlighted concerns about um, not having, I guess, a clear picture into activity in the Treasury market. And there was a lot of talk around then about the principal trading firms and getting them registered in some capacity. And if you look at this rule, there's a lot of discussion about the principal trading firms and their activity in the treasury markets. So my theory, at least, is that they probably started on a draft text of this rule sometime 2015 into 2016. Then we saw a, you know, Donald Trump was elected president in 2016. I think in um, that uh, draft text for a final for this type of rule probably got shoved in the back of a filing cabinet within the Division of Trading and Markets. And I assume that once Gary Gensler took over, March 2020 happened, that this proposal was probably dusted off um, and probably refined and maybe its scope broadened to include hedge funds uh, within it. And I think that's, that's at least my theory, how we ended up here. Um, and I would like to, <laughs> I, I would, it would be interesting to see if that, that theory is correct, but I think, you know, it's as uh, certainly a possibility that it is. That's an interesting one. I've actually not heard that theory before. So that, that's a new one. I wonder if you can do what the, what's the U S equivalent of a freedom of information request. So you can ask when the, when did this draft? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when did this word doc first come into being? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it, you know you you look at 2014 Treasury flash crash, the subsequent report there, the kind of the change in administration with Donald Trump, and then Gensler 
March 2020 and the events in the Treasury market there. That you know, this, that's a separate topic for conversation because I think hedge funds are continually labeled as you know the culprits behind the, the volatility there. But even the Federal Reserve has kind of dispelled that rumor. And I know my colleague James Hopegood has done a lot of work on that. But I imagine that March 2020 led to this uh, the text of this proposal being dusted off. So before we move on, I, I did just want to bring up one other thing, which I know has potentially confused a few people because there are so many uh, threads to pull on when it comes to, to U.S. regulatory work at the moment. And that is the SEC's other avenue for uh, amending the dealer rule, which is to go through the courts. And again, regular listeners will know that AMA has been involved in filing several amicus briefs uh, in, in relation to those court cases, most notably uh, Al Mugabe versus SEC and, and several others now. And the uh, core of the issue here is that the SEC has found certain individuals or very small firms and has accused them of being unregistered securities dealers. The point here being that if they were found uh, guilty of acting as an unregistered dealer, then that would obviously shift the threshold for who else might be acting as a um, as an unregistered securities dealer. So, Daniel, this obviously is running concurrently and is in, in many ways related, but is also, um, I think in previously we've described it as their cousins, or, or they are sort of sort of orbiting each other without ever touching. Can you just explain how these two um, channels of, of regulatory work by the SEC are related? That's right, Drew. You mentioned um, Alma Garby. Uh, there's Keener. There's LG Capital. There's Careborn. There's Morning View. There's Octus. There, you know, that's I think that's six cases that I just listed that all go to this kind of same issue as to, well who is a securities dealer and who isn't. And the SEC in these cases is making this argument that they've taken this hyper-literal interpretation of the Exchange Act definition and said that any person who is in the business of buying and selling securities is a securities dealer. So what I said earlier was that in the business of buying and selling securities, that means facilitating customers' orders in a principal capacity. That's what a dealer is, and that's what it's been understood to mean at a high level for 89 years. Well. The SEC has now said that, no, that's not right. If you're just involved in the business of buying and selling securities, then you're a securities dealer. So will you take that to its logical conclusion? That's any, um, any hedge fund, uh, insurer, pension fund, family office, uh, large retail investor, you name it. Um, there's really no, um, it's it's such a broad reading of of the Exchange Act that it there's no logical end to it, and I think you look at this rule in tandem with the proposed rule, which has you know excludes certain parties, and then if you meet certain standards, then you would have to register. The proposed rule, if it was adopted as is, would essentially be superfluous if the SEC is in parallel arguing that any person who buys and sells securities is a securities dealer. Well, we will uh, obviously be following all these issues closely and, and we'll come back to the proposal at least uh, as soon as we do get sight of that final uh, rule from the SEC. But moving on somewhat, but still staying in Treasury markets, the second thing I wanted to talk to you about was the SEC's proposal for um, putting some of Treasury market transactions through a 
a CCP or a, a central clearing counterparty. At a high level, again, what's going on here? Right. So this is another rulemaking that's focused on treasury markets. And this one, the SEC is essentially uh, <clears throat> requiring FIC, who's the kind of the main um, clearinghouse or the only clearinghouse right now for, for treasuries to establish certain policies and procedures that would require its clearing members. And then the, uh, the text they call direct participants to submit for clearing and settlement certain uh, treasury related transactions. So these would be all repos, all reverse repos, all IDB trades, and any purchase and sales of treasuries, cash treasury between a clearing member, and then they list uh, several parties, one of which is is hedge funds broadly. And for anyone that doesn't know, uh, what would the benefit be of putting treasuries through a CCP? Well, I think you know broadly as a, as an organization, and I, we you know support central clearing because when it's Calibrated appropriately, it increases market resiliency, liquidity, and transparency in financial markets. But I think um, you know the points we've made in our comment letters and our engagement with the SEC is before you kind of install this clearing mandate for what amounts to almost all treasury-related transactions, either cash or repo, then you need to fix the FIC model. Um, first, because there are several issues with that that need to be resolved. Um, otherwise, really, the the goals of the proposal and the benefits of central clearing are not going to uh, you know materialize and will be unattainable um, if if it were to go through as is. Because there has been uh, criticism elsewhere in the market, CCPs have been sort of a, a hotly debated uh, topic in across Europe and, and the US and elsewhere for, for many years now. And one of the, the chief criticisms is that you're sort of exchanging one type of risk for another and that uh, you're not necessarily sort of reducing risk in the overall market. Is that something that applies here or is this sort of coming at the, the problem from a different angle? I think really our main concern with this rule, when I talked about the the FIC policies and procedures, is before we can really have a clearing mandate that can achieve the ends the commission believes you know a clearing mandate can achieve, and you know we mentioned the benefits of central clearing. Before all of that is done, they need to resolve the issue around what's called these dunaway trades. And so Dunaway trades, for example, are transactions in which a FIC clearing member clears a transaction on behalf of its customer in which the clearing member is not the execution party. So, for example, a hedge fund executes a trade with you know bank A and the hedge fund clears with bank B. So fixed rules essentially, per, they, fixed rules do permit their direct participant clearing members to clear Dunaway trades but they do not specifically prohibit the direct participants from compelling clients to bundle execution and clearing services. So, well, what does that mean? It means that the rules, fixed rules permit a clearing member to limit its customers executing counterparties by only accepting for clearing transactions that are also executed by the clearing member. So if this issue isn't resolved prior to a clearing mandate, like I said, the goals the commission hopes the proposal will achieve, uh, and the benefits of central clearing will really be will really be unattainable, because if that issue is not fixed, you install this clearing mandate. A lot of market participants, many AMA members who are active in the treasury market, 
are going to face additional costs to establish new clearing relationships with dealers whom they wish to trade, or they'll have to seek to become a direct member of FIC. Well, that, of course, comes with costs that can reach the uh, multi-millions of dollars, and direct members, uh, direct membership may not even work for some market participants for a variety of business or regulatory reasons. And what do you think the background is here? I know I'm just thinking about this now. Does this does this also fall into the bucket of your sort of decade-long hangover from uh, treasury volatility, or <laughs> how have we arrived here? I think that that could be part of it. I know there's always been a discussion floating around about you know all to all trading in, in treasury markets and the like. Um, but I think this one and kind of circling back to dealer, I think the the catalyst for a lot of those events, you can kind of trace back to the flash crash and then probably March of 2020. And there have been calls by, you know, a, a lot of folks who are active in the treasury markets for uh, central clearing provided that, you know, these structural issues with FIC are addressed because there's no alternative right now to FIC. If you wanted to, if the treasury mandates, you know, that all of these treasury transactions have to be cleared, everybody has to clear them through FIC. Um, so there's no there's no alternative out there for those who would want to to clear through another uh, CCP. And we bring this up now because uh, there are um, some indications that this is another one where we may well see the final rule fairly soon, I believe, although it's a little bit more vague. Can you give us uh, any indication on next steps? Right. So there's the New York Fed holds a Treasury market conference every November. Um, and this year it falls on no- November 16th, which is a Thursday. And I think you look back at the various conferences through the past few years, and there's usually some treasury market structure or treasury market related news that comes out around that meeting. Um, and our understanding is that this rule and perhaps dealer as well, or maybe one or the other, um, will be adopted close in time to this conference. Um, and, you know, the, the conversations that, that we've had with individual members and, and others and the rumors that we, we hear, it does sound like that this rule uh, could be with the commission uh, and could be adopted sooner than later. Perfect. Well, another one to come back to later in the year then. So last but not least, we have what has uh, until it is potentially soon to be eclipsed by dealer, the hottest topic in uh, US regulatory circles. And that is, of course, the private fund advisor rule. Now, I'm not going to ask Daniel to go through uh, all the foundational uh, texts here. We have covered this in the past and we will link to um, so many other resources that uh, Aimer and others have done in the show notes for anyone that needs a little primer. Uh, we're just going to jump to what has happened this week and, and what is expected to happen uh, throughout the rest of the year. And that is that yesterday, uh, the legal representative for the Coalition of Trade Bodies that is challenging the rule, and that is um, the law firm Gibson Dunn, has filed the uh, the or has taken the first step in with the first filing uh, in what will be a few stages before we see something more substantial in the new year. So, Daniel, can you just take us through what happened this week and uh, what it all means and where we're going? Right. So just to <clears throat> set the stage a bit, the final rule was adopted on August 23rd. 
on September 1st, uh, AMA, along with five organizations, filed suit in the uh, U.S. Circuit, uh, excuse me, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, uh, essentially asking the court to set aside the final private funds rule on the grounds that the SEC exceeded its statutory authority, the rules are arbitrary and capricious, et cetera. So on September 15th, we filed a motion for expedited review, which the SEC did not oppose, and the court subsequently granted. And the court set out a briefing schedule that mostly aligns with what we suggested. Yesterday, as you mentioned, on November 1st, we filed our opening brief that really kind of lays out our uh, argument as to why the court should should overturn this rule, uh, certainly in, in much more detail than, than I can provide here on the call. Um, so that's kind of that's where we are right now. Excellent. Well, thank you for that, Daniel. So finally, then, what are the next steps? So the next step is the SEC has until December 15th to submit their their brief. Um, and then we uh, have the opportun- opportunity to submit a reply brief uh, by January 22nd of next year. So the court in setting out the schedule um, has kind of as ballpark that oral argument will be set for some time in February and March. And on this schedule, we're hoping that a final decision could be reached by uh, the end of May of next year, early June, although this timing is ultimately up to the, the sole discretion of the court. But this, uh, you know, assuming that it, a final decision does fall during that time, it is before the, um, uh, I believe, the September 14th compliance date for, for large advisors for some parts of the final rule. Perfect. Well, as always, your encyclopedic knowledge of all these topics is a huge benefit to AMA and one that I plan to shamelessly rely on for the long short in uh, many times in the future. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, we will be uh, revisiting these topics once we know more in the coming weeks. But for now, thank you so much for walking us through this and uh, for joining us once again on the long short. Great. Thanks again, Drew. And we'll um, keep an eye on the SEC website for what's next. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.